around these two fundamental aspects that are being referred to as dharma and adharma. The moment we say dharma and adharma, most people tend to wanting to think in terms of right and wrong, in terms of what's correct and incorrect or in terms of what is good and bad. Dharma and adharma is being referred to in different ways. A kshatriya, a warrior has his own kind of dharma. A brahmana, a teacher has his own kind of dharma. A vaishya has his own dharma. A shudra has his own dharma. So if every one of us have our own dharma, 
then where is the law? If all of us have our own laws, then where is the law? So this is an intricate and a very sophisticated way of looking at life. Each one has his own dharma, not only the different classes of people, each one of them has his own dharma. As you repeatedly heard, Bhishma repeatedly saying, this is my dharma. You will see as we go by, every one of them saying, but this is my dharma. So if everybody has their own law, where is the law? So the war did not happen because everybody had their own law and they became contrary to, contrary to each other and they fought a war, no. The war happened because people broke their own dharmas. This is a, a way of looking at life where everybody can have their own dharma but still there is a common thread of dharma which nobody can break. So everybody can live their lives in their own freedom but still not clash into each other. A sophisticated system of thought was established in the society and certain people were breaking that fundamental thread of dharma which allowed coexistence, which allowed a possibility of civilized existence. Before dharma came, there was something called as matsyanyaya. Matsyanyaya means the whole story. One day a little fish came in Ganga, happy, moving around, fishy, 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 fishy. But then a little bigger fish came from elsewhere, very happy. Small fish became a part of the big fish. Big fish happy. Then another day another fish came, little bigger and ate up the big fish, very happy. Like this, this fish became bigger, bigger, bigger. Bigger and bigger fish came and ate up the smaller fish and the fish became big and went to the ocean and there started eating up smaller fish and became a huge fish and became a threat to the world where if he just wagged his tail, the whole ocean went and hit Himalayas. You must understand the story in the right context. Even today it is true, every fish is trying to get bigger than the… than what it is. If some fish gets too big, then you will find all the fundamentals of a society tends to crash. If lot of fish are growing, if all the fish are growing reasonably at the same pace, there will be a civilized society. If one fish becomes too big, super big fish, then no law will exist in that society, no civilization will exist in that society, that fish's whim will be the law. So from Matsya Nyaya, this is called as Matsya Nyaya, that means uh, fishy justice. 
from fishy justice, they are constantly striving to get the society on a place where every individual can have his freedom, can pursue his own law, at the same time not break the fundamental thread of law which will lead to collision. Everywhere we make simple rules in the society, even in the physical world. Americans, those who come from America don't drive on the Indian street <laughs> for many reasons I'm telling you. <laughs> One thing is we drive on the right side of the street. No, 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 on the left side of the street, which is the right thing. You drive on the wrong side of the street, but it's the right side. It's complicated. <laughs> you're right but you're wrong, we are left but we are right. And there are other complications in India. India is a multicultural society and the many of them who are wild and untamed, who do not belong to any culture, they're still deciding where to drive <laughs> They're still not made up their mind which side of the road to drive. They're making up their mind, there are lots of them <laughs> So, Mahabharat is a situation where a few fish have grown too big and they don't respect the fundamental thread of law which would allow everybody that individual freedom. And when they talk about the law or the dharma, they're not just talking about it as a civil code, not just for peace in the society, not just for human beings to find expression to their talent, to their love, to their freedom, not just for that. Dharma is to make the life process in such a way that everybody is climbing towards his ultimate nature. If you're progressing towards your ultimate nature, you're in dharma. If you're progressing towards your original nature, towards your divine nature, you're in dharma. If you are not progressing, even if you don't harm anybody, you're not in dharma. That is the context in which they're talking about dharma repeatedly. So when somebody says, this is my dharma, okay, you don't like it, it's not convenient for you, but this is my dharma means he's saying, this is the way I will reach my ultimate nature. When Bhishma says, this vow is my dharma, it does not matter. Maybe the Kuru progeny will fall apart, the Kuru lineage will fall apart, this empire will fall apart. Though I'm willing to give my life to this empire, this is my dharma, I will not break it. When he says it, he is saying, this is the way I am going to attain, this I will not give up. So, you heard what Vidura said, for the sake of a family you can sacrifice an individual, for the sake of a village you can sacrifice a family, for the sake of a nation you can sacrifice a village, for the sake of the world you can sacrifice a nation. And for the sake of the ultimate nature, you can sacrifice the whole world. I want you to understand that is the context in which they are looking at. 
they're clearly seeing that the ultimate nature is the ultimate goal and of ultimate significance. From this context, they're forming all the laws and when somebody breaks a law, from your context, it may look absolutely wrong, but in their context it is looking absolutely right because they are looking at simple… even the simple laws of day-to-day -day life as only a stairway towards their ultimate nature. So when Bhishma takes this terrible vow, we call this a terrible vow not because he became a brahmachari, not because he incapacitated himself, simply because the nation that he loves so much, he is putting it to jeopardy. Kuru lineage and the Kuru nation means everything to him, but he is willing to destroy it. This is the terrible vow he is taking. The terrible… the nature of the vow being terrible is not because of his personal discomfort or personal loss, because what means most to him, he is drowning that. But he is saying, this is my dharma because this is… I have decided this is the way for me to attain. As we go by, you will see various situations where Bhishma comes out almost superhuman because they are not looking at brahmacharya just as not getting married. What brahmacharya means is, literally it means brahman and charya. Brahman means the ultimate, charya means you are on the path of the ultimate. When we say brahmacharya, this is particularly relevant in terms of sadhana. There are other ways for the feminine, but particularly relevant to the masculine or the male body because the seed of life that is in a man, if he is willing to transform this, when I say the seed of life, a single cell which is able to create another human being. The capacity of the man to be able to transform this into a life force is like an atomic force. If you can take an atom and release it, a single atom can create so much energy, just like this. But the same capability is not in a woman's body because it's a compulsive cycle. If she does not make use of it to produce a child, she will lose it anyway. She cannot hold it in her body, she cannot make use of it in any sense because it dies periodically. But what is referred to as virya, to transform this is brahmacharya. So you will see at various times, people say we cannot fight with him because he is a brahmachari. This does not mean that he is just willing to die, just that, no. It is just that they cannot kill him because every seed in his body he has transformed it into a fresh life. And the nature of his life is so big that it is no more as mortal life is generally. So it is from this context, it is being said, Bhishma had the power to choose his time of death because he not just… he did not just take a, take a vow and deny himself something, he made use of this opportunity to transform the seed within himself into a live 
life force through which he almost became mortal by choice. He is not immortal, but he can choose his mortality. He can choose the time and place of his mortality, which is partially as good as immortality. Immortality can only happen to you if you are cursed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you live forever, can you believe it? <laughs> the torture of it? No. Immortality is a curse. Choice of being able to die when you want to die is a boon. A lot of research going into this, some… a group of scientists are doing this, I still do not know the full uh, breadth and profoundness of this research, but I heard that they are doing it. They are researching some of the things that have been said in Mahabharat, particularly when it comes to the war and the astras. Astra means weapons. They're talking about weapons as if they're talking about atomic weapons or nuclear weapons. Either they had a fabulous, fabulous imagination, which is unbelievable, that they're actually saying the smallest particle in the existence can be made into the biggest force on the battlefield. That sounds like an atomic bomb, but they were still using bows and arrows. So from what context are they talking like this? From what knowledge are they talking like this? Did they have it or did they witness it somewhere? Or did somebody else come from somewhere else and talk to them about these things? We do not know, somebody seems to be researching it. Very clearly, they're talking about these things and they're employing certain astras, the impact of it, they're talking about it. They're saying if you use the as this astra and even if you neutralize it, even if you do not let it destroy the world, they're saying all the children in the wombs of the mothers will be scorched out. I think that's modern language, isn't it? So like this, there are various aspects. So you need to look at this story with a certain care. You don't look at it just as, okay, these two people are fighting, this guy wants the kingdom, that guy wants the wife, that guy wants a child. It's not just about that. There are various dimensions to it and uh, we will leave the evening open for you to look back on the story till now and probe it with your intellect and ask questions. Sadhguru, uh, you said uh, that everybody can have their own life and freedom as of dharma and still without clashing with each others uh, nowadays, but isn't this the way around which this dharma we built our personality? And it's bound to have a clash anyway, if having uh, our personality built around our dharma? Uh, that's why I said it's a very sophisticated thought. If we have simple needs and we construct our dharma around our simple needs, invariably we will collide with somebody. People created the dharma in such a way, my ultimate aspiration and your ultimate aspiration need not clash. But for us to operate on the street, in the house, in the marketplace, there is a common dharma that all of us follow. To drive on the street, it is determined all of us drive either this side or that side. 
If you are going this way, you s you know, you stick to this part of the road, if you're coming from the other way, you stick to this part of the road. This is a common dharma. This you are not going to break because you have some other dharma. Your dharma is about you reaching your ultimate nature. It is the way you are, it will not clash with anybody because my dharma is essentially internalized process. It is not going to go into collision with anybody else's dharma. And my dharma is not of in any way enforceable upon your dharma. My dharma does not encroach upon your dharma because my dharma is essentially towards my inner aspirations. Outer things I understand, the codes and rules of the outer world has to be followed, that is common dharma that everybody has to stick to. When we question that, there will be collision, there will be conflict. So, the dharma that we are talking about is many-tiered. One is to live in the family, what kind of dharma? To be on the street, what kind of dharma? To be an ascetic, what kind of dharma? To be a king, what kind of dharma? To be a merchant, what kind of dharma? Like this various things. But for me as a being, what kind of dharma? This I have the freedom to choose and stick to it. Because essentially human liberation is not because somebody did this or that. Essentially, he who hung on to something in an unwavering manner, nischala tattvam jivan muktihi. In an unwavering manner, you stuck to it and so you're on. Every day you're changing direction, obviously you will end up in circles. Sadhguru, when we're talking about the ultimate nature and the dharma from the inside, uh, I understand dharma as a set of laws, but… Uh, as what? Laws, our okay. law. Mm -hmm. And um, how about when we're dealing with life as it comes and things as they come, rather than having a set of laws? Um, I'm not sure I understand that. Also, sometimes it's difficult to determine, especially when you're questioning yourself, um, whether your motives or things are coming from your ego or from your inner being. And uh, how do you, dis do you discriminate in that? How do you know sometimes it's difficult? Now, if, uh, life does not just come. Life is constantly being created. Either you created it yesterday and it's befalling upon you today or you're actively creating it today. It doesn't just come. People who think it just comes have come to this conclusion or have conveniently taken this mode with certain aspect of their life only. Wherever they're successful, they don't think it just comes. Wherever something sitting heavily on their head, they think it has just come. Nothing just comes. There are two aspects, there is dharma and there is karma. To perform the right kind of karma, you need a dharma. Otherwise, 
every day, every moment our actions will be a series of confusions. So dharma is establishing the way you perform your karma so that you create your life in the direction that you want to. When I say creating your life, oh, what kind of palace will I have, what kind of car will I buy, what kind of man will I marry, what kind of woman will I marry, no. This is not what we're talking about. That is secondary. The most important thing is, what kind of being will I be? Because it is this which decides the quality of who you are. It is this which decides the quality of your life. It is this which decides whether you live well here and hereafter. With who you are, what you have around you, whether you're living in a palace, are you eating food or are you eating gold, it makes no difference if you have… if you eat gold, you will die soon. So you don't know where life is, first of all. You do not know where life is, you're knocking on all the wrong doors and thinking it's going to work, it's not going to work. So establishing the dharma is to ensure that my karma does not deviate from the fundamental life process. Constantly it's reminding me this is my dharma, is to be like this. We set this up for you, you forgot. When you came to Isha Yoga, we tried to set up, I don't want to insult you by saying we tried, we did. It worked. It worked? It worked. We set up dharma for you in three different dimensions. One is about how you will be within yourself, another is about how you will be with the world, another is how you will be when you are not. You forgot or you did not understand because it does not work because you understand, it works because you use it. Do you understand the difference? Something does not work for you because you understand, something works for you because you learn to use it. First few days, should I go back to Isha Yoga now? First few days we started telling you, what's the first day's class, tell me? All the rules are my rules. Suppose you walked around in your house seeing all the rules of this house are my rules, what would happen? Tell me quickly, what would happen? Hmm? Would you be used and abused or would you naturally become the power in the place? You're a soft power, please understand, without asserting yourself, without asking for power. Somebody asks for power because he's powerless, isn't it? Who asks for power? Somebody who's powerless, isn't it so? What do you ask for? What you don't have, isn't it? It was very wonderfully expressed. I was… Uh, I was speaking at a school many years ago, a school in uh, Trichy. The teacher, talking to thirteen, fourteen-year-old kids, it's a ninth standard, Ninth standard is a dangerous place because they're killing the teachers these days <laughs> It's the ninth standard, thirteen or fourteen-year-olds 
So a teacher comes up and says, if God gives you one boon, what will you ask for? This is many years ago. First boy stands up and says, sir, I want Martikar, sir. <laughs> Another boy stands up, sir, Kusbu, sir. Five lakh rupees, sir. Like this, a few things went on. Then the teacher said, you idiots, what will you do with all these things? Ask for intelligence, ask for intelligence. So one boy in the last bench said, sir, everybody ask for what they don't have. So somebody tries to assert himself and show he is the power, obviously because he is powerless, isn't it? Power does not come because you claim. Joy does not come because you claim. Love does not come because you claim. It comes because you are in a certain way, otherwise it will not come. So we try to establish your dharma if you are at home, whatever if you've chosen to be at home. If you're trapped at home, leave it. If you've chosen to be at home, the rules of your home are your rules, yes or no? If you've chosen to drive on the street, the rules of the street are your rules. If you've chosen to live in this country, the rules of this country are your rules. If you've chosen to live in this universe, the rules of this universe are your rules. Yes or no? Otherwise, you will constantly feel like an alien in your own home, in your own street, in your own country, in your own world, in your own universe, you're a constant alien, isn't it? Now, this is not civil code that I'm teaching you, this is dharma. If you just establish this, you will be in line with the existence. When I say the laws of the universe, the dharma of the universe, yesterday we were going through numbers and numbers. I could have gone through many more numbers but uh, too much arithmetic, not… you don't like it, I never liked it. <laughs> but if you go through this properly, the very way you breathe is connected to the planet. The… everything that you do, the way your heart beats, the way you breathe, the way your system performs is deeply, deeply connected with the rest of the universe. If you consciously followed the laws of the universe, would this function much better? Would this function much better? It would function in a phenomenal way. I want you to understand, you are not feeling good either in body or mind because you're not following the fundamental laws of the universe. Unconsciously, yes, but whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, this is the way of the existence. If you consciously fall off the roof or if you unconsciously fall off the roof, does it hurt differently? It is just that if you consciously fall, you may try to land on your feet, otherwise you may land on your head. That possibility is there. But the pain and the suffering and the experience of it, 
is not going to be better. So that is not the point. Unconsciously I went off the track, still you are derailed. So we were establishing your dharma, I don't want to go through the whole inner engineering or Isha Yoga program, I was just telling you this, well at least we told you, if you don't get anything, you're an emotional creature, you don't understand anything else, from class to class you forget what is the previous session. Just be a mother to the world, did I? Did you take that step? How long? How… how many times have you looked upon every creature around you being as yours? Very few times. Then how will it work? No, no, I understand mother, no mother to the world, I've also got two children. It's not going to work like that. Life, dharma is not going to work for somebody who underst… who thinks he understands it. It is only going to work for one who implements it, who becomes it. So, Bhishma is saying, my dharma is harsh, I've taken this, but I've become this. It does not matter what, if it takes my life, if you want, I will take off my head and give it to you, but I cannot change this because this has become me. So if you are like this, that if you have established your dharma, you are establishing your way of being. Yogastaha Kurkarmani means first establish your way of being and then act. First your dharma, then your karma. Now you are too much karma, wondering what the hell is dharma, it's a problem. Karma does not mean you've done a lot of things in the world you've done a lot of nonsensical things in your head, that is the karma. You're doing too many nonsensical things in your head, that is karma. Karma is being performed, one is physical action, karma means action. Physical action, mental action, emotional action and energy action. Four levels of karma, every moment of your life, as you sit here you're doing all the four karmas, if you eat, you will be doing it, if you walk, you will be doing it. If you are fast asleep, you are still doing four dimensions of karma every moment of your life, in wakefulness and in sleep. So if this karma should not take you away from well-being, you must establish your dharma. If you not establish your dharma, karma will take you away because most of your karma is unconscious. You do not even decide where it goes. But if you establish your dharma, then your karma will naturally follow that pattern. Your karma will have an order, your karma will have a direction, your karma will have a goal and your karma will have a fulfillment if you have established your dharma. If you not establish your dharma, your karma wanders all over the place. Everything that you look at, wherever you see your mind and emotion and your body also can run behind it, isn't it? Now this becomes a confused being. I'm not talking about a confused mind which you know very well. I'm talking about a confused being. When it leaves this body, it will not even know where to go. Do you understand? You understand? No, you are confused. If you understand this, you got it. <laughs> no, you cannot understand this. I am not talking about confusion that you experience in your mind. 
what shall I eat? Idli or dosa, idli or dosa, idli or dosa, idli or dosa. I am not talking about that kind of confusion. The being is confused because there is no dharma, the being gets confused. When you exit this body, this being does not even know which way to go. That's ultimate suffering. That is the worst thing that can happen to a human being, which is happening large scale, unfortunately. Because people are not establishing any kind of dharma for themselves, they think it is freedom. Tell me, in the name of freedom, if we take away the road rules as to which side you should drive, everybody can drive wherever you want, will people become free or get stuck? You'll only get stuck. So freedom does not come by breaking rules. Freedom finds expression only if there's a clear-cut path, isn't it so? So, don't ever say, what about that which just comes and me handling it just as I feel like it? No, no, no. That is not spontaneity, that is compulsiveness. Even for spontaneity, you have to stand. There must be a footing for your spontaneity. If there is no footing, there is no spontaneity. And there is no spontaneity in you because the very way your body is structured, you did not determine this, isn't it? How your forefathers were in Krishna's Dwapar Yuga, still your body looks the same thing, though in between your people might have mixed many things, still the genetic material of those people still playing games with you, isn't it so? Yes? As you sit here, who knows? Pandu's genetics, Duryodhana's genetics, Dhritarashtra's genetics, Kuntai's genetics are playing havoc with you. No, no, Sadhguru, I am not an Indian. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, they were Aryans. You know, a few months ago when I was in France, I went to Brittany and uh, there's a bunch of people. Uh, when I said, uh, what is Brittany, why did you guys name yourself after Britain? They said, no, no, this is real Brittany, our brothers went there. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> they said, we are Celts, we came from northern India. We are Celtic people and they are still worshipping the four elements. They have temples for four elements and they say, we've spread all over the Europe and then went to UK and called it Britain. But we are actually Celtic people and we came from northern India. I said, okay, I had to come this far in France to meet Indians. <laughs> this is funny in the world. Columbus goes all the way and meets Indians in America. I all go all the way to France and meet Indians and wherever the hell you go, they're saying we're Indians. And now of course you can't go anywhere without seeing an Indian. They're just everywhere <laughs> Now, the genetics of people who lived here even a million years ago are playing games with you even today, isn't it so? Yes or no? So, if you have to go beyond this, what is playing up from within? If you have to go beyond this and establish your own dharma, that is not a simple thing, do you understand? 
Somebody saying, this is my dharma is not some egoistic nonsense. That means he's saying, I'm going beyond my father, my forefathers, my whoever else. I'm discarding my genetics and establishing my own path. My father had these behavior patterns. This is what Bhishma is saying, my father is a compulsive falling in lover. <laughs> Periodically, he keeps falling, but that's not my karma, this is my dharma. I will never go this way or that way, my life is dedicated to the nation and that's all I am. So he is breaking away from his genetic pattern and establishing his own way. That's what spiritual sadhana means, that you're establishing your own dharma in such a way that the past does not overtake your life. You know, somebody told you, leave the dead to the dead, you know? You know the story? When someone came and told Jesus, my father is dead, let me bury him and come, Jesus said, leave the dead to the dead. Looks like most inhuman way thing to say when a man has lost his father. Looks like the most incompassionate thing to say, but that's what he said because he's not talking about just the dead that is Shia, he's saying leave the dead to the dead because all the dead are dancing inside of you. If you don't leave the dead to the dead, forget about having your own dharma, you don't even have a life of your own. You don't have a life of your own. Somebody else is trying to live through you. So, establishing my own dharma means that, that you're establishing your own dharma in such a way that you have left the dead to the dead, that you have carved out a new path for yourself. This is freedom, isn't it? And Krishna gives you an insight into his own values of life. When you say Krishna, you are not talking about a person, you are talking about an entity or you are talking about a dimension beyond all entities. So in a way, he is giving you an insight into the mind of the creation. So, after Yudhishthira was coronated, Krishna went back to Dwaraka. Dra Dwaraka was very prosperous and he saw too much affluence and he tried to tell them, if you want to postpone the disaster of the Yadavas. He did not say avoid, he said, if you want to postpone, it is best that we put a cap on this effluence. But Yadavas are on a splurge, now they have learned how to become wealthy. They are getting wealthier and wealthier, drunker and drunker, loser and loser in their life. More intoxicated, inebriated all the time, so naturally their society became a loose process. <clears throat> and Krishna was napping in the afternoon and he had a dream. In his dream, he saw men and women coming in endless processions, talking of dharma, waiting to know what it was, himself unable to give a satisfying answer. Processions of people coming and coming towards him 
and going on asking questions about what is dharma, what is this dharma, that dharma. And then he found his own answers are not truly fulfilling, something is lacking in this. He looked back, the dharma that we tried to implement and the effect of it, the pain and suffering the Pandavas went through, Panchali's struggles, the Kurukshetra war, the brutality, the things that he had to do to win the war, the things that he had to do to secure the kingdom for Yudhishthira. He looked back on all the various results that his own effort to implement dharma brought about and he shivered a bit when he looked back at his own life. Though everything was done with the best of intention, with the greatest power, assistance, still all that happened to so many people because Krishna did not just go through situations. Whether it is Kauravas or Pandavas or just anybody, anything that happened to anybody, he made sure a bit of it happened to him because he did not want to mix, miss any experience. This is something, this is very important what we are going to go through. This is something that every human being should know. When you cause a situation, whatever kind, it may be of just two people, it may be of five people, it may be five hundred people, five million people, whatever kind of situation you are capable of causing. When you cause a situation, it is very important that you let yourself experience what is happening to everybody who is part of this situation. This is something that I am constantly trying to inculcate into our teachers. They've done well, but still not as good as I want them to do. They've done well on the outside, they've done wonderfully well. You can see they've done well, isn't it? The volunteers and the teachers, but still not everybody, they think doing the work becomes more important than allowing the situation to be a part of yourself. Going through everything that everybody is going through right now is important. Otherwise, whatever your dharma may be, it will become a barren dharma, it will not be a live dharma. You are constantly allowing this to happen to you. So the pain of Panchali, the defeat of the Kauravas, the pain of death, the widows, the orphans, all these pains, in small proportions Krishna stored it in his heart and now in this dream, he allowed it to all find expression and his body shuddered because of the intensity of the experience. And he mildly opened his eyes and he saw Satyabhama's face, a calm face, fast asleep and he again closed his eyes. And he heard himself asking this man and woman, do you know dharma? Because this whole experience of his life, he went through it within himself, he had accumulated it, now he fi found time 
this… this nap is a metaphoric nap. Only people who have time on their hands can nap, you know. <laughs> we are not those fortunate ones. Nap, if we sleep in the night, it's a great thing <laughs> Nap is out of question <laughs> So people who have the time to nap, so for the first time in his life, he's having time to nap. After an intense life, he's aged now and he… he's napping and he looks, he opens his eyes partially and looks at Satyabhama, she's fast asleep. He smiles because Satyabhama has been napping all her life. Beauty sleep, you know <laughs> He is napping only now. All his life he's lived a hard, intense life, wanting to make something happen all the time. So he smiled and again closed his eyes and continued the dream. And he's asking the people, do you know what is dharma? I want you to get this, this is very important <laughs> because probably most of you have always known Krishna stood there, yada yada dharmas you <laughs> That's not the man. This is a man, do you understand? <laughs> man of all men, he is. So he asked, do you know what is dharma? Yes, said one, I know it. He's a prophet mad skinflint and he said, my dharma is wherever I go, I must make profit. My dharma is that I must take the maximum I can take from every given situation. That's my dharma. Then Krishna said, your dharma is the child of greed. I know you not. And Krishna said, but I will let you pass. The second man came. Krishna asked, do you know what is dharma? The second man said, I am pious, I have shrunk from the ways of sin, never murdered, never stolen, never whored. My way is the only righteous way. Krishna said, your dharma is the child of fear, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. The third one came, a daredevil. He said, I know my dharma, I have destroyed my enemies, for whoever opposes me is the seed of sin. I perform sacrifices, give in charity and thereby proclaim my victory to the world. I feed the brahmanas and my praises are sung by them. Your dharma is the child of vanity. I know you not, said Krishna, but I, tell, I shall let you pass. Then there came before him one who was meek and resigned. I know dharma, no one else does, he said. It is humility, unresisting. I suffer wrongs cheerfully. I bear hunger, thirst, cold and even misfortune. That is the privilege of the meek spirit.
this is the glory of dharma, he declared. Krishna said, your dharma is the child of a slave mind. Your dharma is the child of a slave mind, which does not know the divinity within him. I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Then came another, sly as a fox, and said, I know my dharma, I stand away from risky action, under dens of lions, walk the path of safety, which comes of peace and fearing the wrath of gods. Krishna said, your dharma is the child of cowardice, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Then there came one who said, I know my dharma, it is to peddle the favor of the gods to those who open their money bags to me. I offer the hope of salvation to those who have none. Drunk with it, they dance in joy. Krishna said, your dharma is the child of a fraud, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Still another came who said, with an air of superiority, I know my dharma, it is to escape the snares of life, to repress the longings of the flesh. I scorn human weakness in myself and in others and revel in stern detachment. I avoid contacts with men and live apart and superior to them. Your dharma is the child of arrogance, I know you not, said Krishna, but I shall let you pass. And yet another came, satisfied with himself, I know dharma, my dharma, I lend money to the gods by giving alms to the poor. I enter what I give in a ledger, which Chandragupta, the divine accountant, will open when I appear at my death before the throne of dharma. I will then present my bill and collect my dues with compound interest and live in comfort thereafter. Krishna said, your dharma is the child of commerce, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Yet another came, his manner was unctuous and he said, I know my dharma, I do not care what I do, I murder, steal, avenge. I chant the glories of the great God and turn my sin into song. I know he will forgive me, however wicked I am, God is merciful. Your dharma is the child of deceit, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Then came another, with the mane of wisdom and words of a saint, my dharma is not to resist evil, I shall suffer in silence and shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let the wicked seek their foul destiny. They are no concern of mine, my martyrdom will win me glory. Your dharma is the child of inaction, I know you not, but I shall let you pass. Then another came with his body fragrant like the lemon leaves, still smirking lips and well-oiled hair. 
All dharma is illusion. I eat, drink and enjoy myself as I like. My body is my only shrine. The pleasures of the flesh are my rituals of worship. Beyond them, there is nothing. After me, there is nothing. Krishna said, you are the child of a demon. I shall never forgive you and I will not let you pass. This whole thing is the whole world, different types of people believing they are doing the right thing. So here, Krishna is not talking as a living man. He's made his humanity sleep and his divinity speaks in his sleep. That is the metaphor of the nap. He is napping. That means the man is napping. The ultimate speaks and he says, all these people, no good, but they will somehow pass. All dharma is illusion. I eat, drink and enjoy myself as I like. My body is my only shrine. The pleasures of the flesh are my rituals of worship. Beyond them there is nothing, after me there is nothing. So Krishna says, you are the child of a demon. I shall never forgive you and you shall not pass. Uh, Sadhguru, others were exploiters and they exploited. I mean, the people whom Krishna let pass uh, were both the exploiters and some of them were exploiters, some of them were exploited. But this person doesn't seem to be either of those. Yes, uh, that's the whole thing. That is the important thing. Your ideas of right and wrong are social in nature. But being in a disharmony with the creation is a different matter. Your ideas of what is exploitation, what is help, what is love, what is compassion, these are all social ideas. You go <laughs> you go to the local peasant, they're very wonderful people, you must say them, and tell him, you must be compassionate to the land that you're plowing. <laughs> what? <laughs> He, he won't understand what the hell you're talking about. No, no, you must compassionately plow. No, he will plow strong, not compassionately because that's the way it works. If you plow compassionately, <laughs> nothing will grow. And then you will say, bring the earth mover, <laughs> bring the tractor. So he will not understand the values or let's use the terminology, the dharma that you are talking about of loving the earth, of com being compassionate to the earth, all environmentalists are talking about it because they've never even taken off their shoes and walked on this planet. They haven't even felt their mother earth yet. They haven't touched a lump of earth in their hands, they haven't even walked without footwear, they have never been in touch with Mother Earth for any reason, but they saw on the computer what Al Gore is saying. 
world is just continuing, just the way it is. I'm not say, I'm not trying to be simply critical of these things, I'm saying there is a disconnect between life and creation. That is not possible. Life is creation and the creator is embedded in the life. You cannot separate it. It is in the separation that you suffer, not in social laws and mores and codes that you have set. Somebody you think is not a good man, maybe living a much better life than you. Usually they are actually. <laughs> Only in resentment you say somebody is bad, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it so? Only in resentment, when somebody is doing better than you and you, you have great values which don't work. So dharma is not about social laws. Here, Krishna as a person has slept, he's allowing existence to speak through him. And here is saying, the suffering and lack of growth will happen because of the disconnect, not because of your ideas of good and bad, you are disconnected with the creation and the creator, that will leave you stranded. He says, I will not let you pass because you will not pass because you're disconnected. Apart from me and my body, there's nothing else. This is me, this is everything. If you think, you're lost. So this is what is the danger of atheism. Theism is bad, it's the opium of the masses. But opium is not so bad, you ask the addicts, they're like, huh? Your brain shrinks a bit, but they don't have no intention of doing anything. <laughs> Am I getting the right expression? <laughs> There's a sense of blissfulness. In avoiding everything, there's a kind of bliss, you know. And this bliss can last only if others have worked to build the society to a certain level of comfort. See, right now, so many people in this ashram, probably in the last fifteen days or more, in the last four months the construction team, and in the last fifteen, twenty days the other teams, their eyes are popping out because they've not gone to sleep. They stand and sleep like this. Somehow they finish the program tomorrow, next day is a super mega event, the Mahashivratri. Oof, full night we didn't sleep and next day, no, no, we have samyama. So what is the idea? Is it to murder them? Because it looks like that. For an outsider, for an outside observer or somebody who is not a willing participant in the whole process, this like looks like a murder plan. <laughs> Sadhguru wants to have everybody dead. <laughs> you don't know when they will eat, when they will sleep. If I drive out at two o'clock, they're still standing there. Any time, I am like three o'clock, three fifteen in the morning, I pick up the phone, never once I will hear a goggy voice, Sadhguru, why is it like this? What is the point of doing this? Because in your mind, 
you know half of your brain is reptilian? Do you know this? Okay, let me not decide the percentage for you <laughs> But the core of your brain is reptilian, you know this. There's a reptilian brain which is approximately the size of human fist. If this much goes away, what is left, tell me. So if you have a big fist, you know what that means. The reptilian brain is the survival instinct of who you are. Survival means me. Survival does not mean taking food and putting it in your mouth. Survival means taking food and putting it in my mouth. Yes or no? Survival means about this and this and this. If this instinct is not there, nobody would be alive. There is an instinct of survival. This instinct essentially comes from your reptilian brain, which is occupying this much of your brain. Mine is a small fist, you may have a big fist. <laughs> Around this, the cerebral cortex has grown. This is what makes you human. I'm… I'm talking about the physical arrangement of humanity in you. It is not this heart which beats which makes you human, even a pig has a heart. Yes or no? Yes or no? More sturdy heart than yours. It is the cerebral cortex which makes you human. Your intelligence, your intellect, your ability to think beyond yourself, all these things come to you because of this. So this part of the brain, which is reptilian in nature, it is always trying to establish boundaries, always trying to restrict itself because it knows its survival is best if the boundary is restricted. All animals live out of this, they have territorial allegiance, you know. They will never cross their territory because they know going into unknown territory is dangerous. Now this instinct is functioning within you. Now how human you become, or how you will raise beyond your humanity is to what extent you can consciously handle the reptilian nature of your brain. If you allow your instinct of survival to function, all the time you will be ah, ah, ah. Anybody comes close, ah. Lot of people everywhere. Simply, have you seen on the street? People are ready to growl, isn't it? In Indian street, it is chaos. We like it. <laughs> we'll feel homesick if it becomes too orderly, you know <laughs> The Indian street is so chaotic, if anybody has to lose his mind, India is the place. <laughs> if you drive, in Chennai or Coimbatore or Mumbai or Delhi or wherever, this is the best place to lose your mind. But you will see, people are happy. Jai Ho, Jai Ho This is because India as a nation, on the borders we've seen some wars, but Indian people 
have never seen a war, have never seen a revolution, never seen bloodshed, never seen anything. A large majority of Indian people have not even seen a crime in their life. And the culture of yoga and spiritual process that is also there, together. In fact, this not seeing all these things is a consequence of that culture, in a way. Somewhere on the border some fighting happened, but we never witnessed those things. Our own lives have never been in threat that way. That's why we keep the traffic the way it is, just to have a taste of <laughs> a war. Oh, I'm missing out on Calcutta. Oh, how could I not mention? <laughs> That's another place <laughs> Anyway, now the sweetness of life will yield not because you're smart, because you're linked with the existence. How closely you're bound to it, that is how deeply you will experience the sweetness of life. Is sweetness of life a goal by itself? No. But it's a necessary condition for you to flower. See right now we say this earth is fertile. What does it mean? When the roots sink, the, the, the roots of the plant or a tree sinks in, it tastes sweetness. Flowers will blossom, fruits will come out. If it sinks in, and it does not taste sweetness, nothing will come out, isn't it? So in that context, the sweetness of your experience upon this planet is important. Only when this life tastes sweetness, this flowers. This is why blissfulness, ananda, ananda everywhere, ananda is being talked about is, if the sweetness of life is not tasted by the roots of life within you, it will not flower or fruit it will remain barren. In that context he is saying, you are disjointed from the life source, you think you are everything by yourself, you cannot pass. It is not that he has to stop him from passing, he cannot pass in the very nature of things. Pranam Sadhguru, uh, as the story goes on and Krishna is trying to establish dharma, he comes across people who both fall off their dharma and uh, follow it and in doing so create uh, blocks in his mission. My question is to do with that aspect of dharma which a person decides for his ultimate liberation. When Bhishma decides brahmacharya or Karna decides friendship or Gandhari decides uh, being an ardhangini, as a method for ultimate… Uh, to reach one's ultimate nature. On what guidelines, on what basis does one decide this? And as they follow, how do they know that they will reach their ultimate goal, their mukti, their ultimate nature? Thank you. When Bhishma takes the vow, He takes the vow out of his kind of attachment and awe for his father. When he takes it, 
but once he has taken it, because as a Kshatriya he cannot go back on his word, he uses that as his ultimate call. Taking a vow like that is not the best way to seek your ultimate well-being. But now he is committed to that, that itself he is using towards his ultimate well-being. Gandhari did not choose to marry hmm, Dhritarashtra. Only after she came to Hastinapur, she realized that her husband is going to be a blind man. So when she realized that, she chose to close her eyes for many things. First of all, living with a blind man means you will have to do everything for him. But if you are blind, everybody will do everything for you. Yes? <laughs> Mark Twain said this, if you don't learn to do anything in your life, somebody will always do it for you. <laughs> there was another… There's another blind woman who drowns her husband in the Mahabharat or tries to drown her husband. Her husband is blind and she will be taking care of him, she'll get fed up. One day she'll ask her sons to throw him in the river. And but that guy doesn't die, he hangs on to something and lives and comes back and things happen. I don't want to go into that story now. So that woman acted like that because she has eyes and husband has no eyes, day in and day out, day in and day out, helping him, helping him, helping him, helping him. So he got sick of it and threw him in the river. Gandhari very smartly avoids all these problems. She herself is like this. So, being a queen, everything is taken care of. I'm not trying to ridicule the whole thing. These are all the many aspects, don't think human mind does not consider everything, it does consider everything, isn't it? Are you innocent of these kind of thoughts? Are you? If you are saying that, you are a liar <laughs> Nobody is innocent of these things. She also thought, that's not the only thing, but that is also there, isn't it? And another thing is, when you have consciously chosen to be blind, the greatness that comes with it is unbelievable. The sacrifice, tremendous, isn't it? Every moment of your life, people will say, wow, what a woman, she lives blind for her husband. If you're a sensible woman and if you love the man, you should have been his eyes, yes or no? If you had sense and if you had… if you had sense in your head and love in your heart, you should have been his eyes. 
but you take the other route because there is personal glory in sacrifice. There is no personal glory in getting up every day in the morning and doing what's needed. There is personal glory in tying a strip around your eyes. Every day in the morning getting up and helping your husband and you also going through the works and a little bit of curses here and there, there is no glory in this. In this there is glory, now everybody has to be helped. But of course they had hundred children. So not very blind. The shock that she had when she came to Hastinapur and realized that her husband is blind was big. This is the way she dealt with her shock. Suppose I'm asking any young woman, your marriage is fixed, for sure you're going to get married and you go there and you realize your husband is blind, no eyes. It's not a small shock, isn't it? It's a big thing, isn't it? If you didn't have an arm, it's all right, you could manage. No eyes is not a small shock, big shock. So this is the way she dealt with her own trauma of going through that marriage. Above all, if you go a little further back, her horoscope says whoever marries her will die in three months' time. So she would have gone through many things in her own family when the parents and brothers realize that they cannot get her married. In a family like that, many things would have happened, not all of it very pleasant. Especially when you have brothers like Shakuni, many things would have happened, isn't it? You think everything would have been pleasant? Many unpleasant things would have happened. And now you marry a goat, the humiliation of marrying a goat and then killing your husband. and then deceiving the next husband, not telling him that I was married earlier. And then coming here and realizing he's actually blind. All these things, when you look at it, what it does to your mind is not a small thing. I want you to look back five thousand years ago, not in today's society, you're educated to hell with this marriage, I'll go and work somewhere, this is not the situation. Either you get married and make your life or you have no life, that's all it is. So when the situation is like that, you can imagine the trauma that she has within herself. So this is her way of drilling, dealing with her own trauma. And once you have said, I will do this, after the third day you, when you want to take it off, you can't take it off. And you are a queen. Even if you go to the toilet, there are the helpers who are coming with you, you can't take it off at all. At least you were just a private person, in the bathroom you could have take it, taken it off and danced. <laughs> but now even in your bathroom you cannot take it off because helpers are waiting everywhere for you. Once you take public vows, you can't go back, isn't it? So, considering all this, she took that step. 
Once you have taken it, whoever you may be, you will see however bad a step you have taken in your life. Once you see there is not much way beyond it, you will try to make the best out of it, isn't it so? Initially you will crave, you will struggle, you will be depressed, you will fight. When you see there is no real way out of it, you will see how to make the best out of it because intelligence always kicks in somewhere. Wherever you are, somehow how to make the best out of it. So the same thing, anyway I have chosen to be blind, let me use my blindness for my well-being. This thought will anyway come to you, it's not even a thought, it naturally, life naturally moves in that direction, isn't it? If that level of intelligence to reconcile with life was not there in a human being, every human being would have a broken mind by now, everyone. Yes or no? Huh? In your own lives, hasn't your intelligence reconciled with something? Otherwise you wouldn't live, your mind would be broken by now. So she also, the same thing, the same thing with everybody. Yesterday when you told that Duryodhana and Arjuna went to Krishna to get his alliance, Krishna sent his army, the group of people who relied on him completely, to the side which he knows for sure is going to be defeated. What is his dharma as a king? And the other thing, every time when a person is at his verge, he is pinching him to do… pinching him to come over his dharma. When Yudhishtha was at his verge, he is just urging him to break his dharma. What is his dharma? Every… everybody's dharma he is pinching him. <laughs> Every time when everybody is at their verge, he is just pinching him, he is just advising him, no problem, you carry on. What is his dharma? Dharma of being practical. <laughs> One person is trying to see dharma as an ancient law. Another person is seeing dharma as the situations are now, in this moment, not even how it was yesterday. You need to understand this before you make judgments. I told you on day one, don't make judgments on anybody. Go with them like it's your life, you will see every one of them exists within you and then we will see which one of them should be enhanced in you. The Duryodhana in you, the Arjuna in you, the Yudhishthira in you, the Karna in you, the Krishna in you, which one should be brought forth, we will look at that later. Don't go about making judgments. Somebody who looks like a fool may come out winner in the end, which it did happen. Somebody who looks evil comes out divine in the end, which it did happen. Somebody who seems to be righteous, comes out all wrong. It did happen and it happens every day with our lives. So don't go about judging, look at it. The thing is, first of all you must see what is Krishna's stake in the whole thing. He's got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. Yes, he's got a kingdom of his own, very prosperous. He can happily live there. He's got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. And we did not go into that aspect. He has great… he, he once expresses, 
when Pandavas talk as if Krishna is their property, Krishna reminds them, I love Duryodhana and his brothers as much as I love you. But I am standing with you because you are truthful. Otherwise, please understand I am not standing with you because I hate them and I love you. I love them as much as I love you. But I will stand with you because you are truthful and only as long as you are truthful. Now the question that you are raising is, he is the one who is telling them not to be truthful. Truth is not a verbal thing. Truth is an existential thing. The truth… what is the truth right now? Right now, I've… it's an outdated example but for you, right now outside, you know, in the last few days there have been a series of bombings across the world as the war was happening here, small ones including in New Delhi, nobody killed, but series of bombings. These little, little bombs, if you multiplied it by thousand, they could have done that, lack of competence or lack of material, whatever. Then thousands would have died. Now, that same one of those bombers are going there outside when you break for lunch, they don't know what's happening here because you're quietly eating. They asked me, because they want to put a bomb where there's maximum human concentration because in the last five days of bombing, nobody got killed except one bomber <laughs> So definitely, Mahabharata program would be a great place. Such concentration of human beings, even if you put one gelatin stick, ten people will die. Yes or no? When such an opportunity is there, if he asks, is Adi Yogi Alam full of people, what should I tell him? Truth? <laughs> so, the ultimate truth is acting out of your inclusiveness. The question is, are you acting out of your inclusiveness or are you acting out of your exclusiveness? That's all the truth is, that is Krishna's dharma. If your intention and action is towards a larger well-being, he is with you. If your intention and action is towards an exclusive well-being of yours, he is not with you. That's the statement he is making. Whichever way it goes, he is trying to constantly push it towards inclusiveness. Whoever comes in the way, he is willing to do whatever needed. He will try to gently push them aside. If they don't go, he will shout them. If they don't go, he'll cut their head. And I'm telling you, ultimately this is what everybody will do. Whatever morality you may have, ultimately when things come to your crux in your life, this is what everybody does anyway, isn't it? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes. yes. In your life such situations may not come, but this is what every human being will do, 
every nation will do, isn't it so? You will talk to them, you will try to shake hands with them, you will try to restrict them, you will do everything. If nothing works, he stands in the way of the well-being, what do you do? You remove him, isn't it? So he has no qualms about stating the truth. You will also do it, but you don't have the courage to admit it now. He is admitting it. Anyway, this is the way life works. And even in the most hopeless situation, he personally makes a journey from King Virata's city back to Hastinapur. I want you to understand, a journey is not like taking a flight. If you want to make a four-hundred, five-hundred kilometer journey in those days, <laughs> you must be super determined towards your purpose, otherwise you wouldn't make it, isn't it? Yes or no? You're not taking a flight. And he makes the journey when they're hopelessly determined to fight, when the man is clearly saying, I won't give even the needle point worth of land, he still goes there, risks his life. They were… if he's a simple man, they would have captured him. You think Dur Duryodhana, if he captures you, he will keep you in uh, comfort and hospitality? When he captures you, you think he's going to treat you great? He could do anything to you. Death is the simplest thing actually. Death will be the easiest thing. The other things that they do, you shouldn't talk about. But he takes this risk, individually he goes there and still sues for peace when he knows they are hopelessly determined. He tries to do his best. But when everything fails, he is willing to do what he has to do unwavering. Others want to do it, but they want to go all over the place. It's not that others don't want to do it, others also want to do it, but they go all over the place not because of any greatness in them, simply because they lack the necessary determination to fulfill what needs to be done. Because they're more concerned about their own thoughts and emotions and stuff, we will see how his life ends, then you will understand him in a different way. Whether it is appropriate or possible to follow the Manudharma which is followed in Mahabharata period in today's situation. What do you think was followed in Mahabharata time? Uh, there are uh, separate categories of different society people, uh, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, but in today's there is no such uh, categories, simply they are uh, bearing the names whether it is appropriate or possible to follow the dharma. The old caste system has broken down. But definitely there is a new kind of caste system, isn't it? <laughs> now, as I already said, because today the world is driven by the economic engine, money determines what class or what caste you belong to. When Marx went about proletariat and bourgeois, bourgeois, he's talking about a kind of caste system. And aren't there sub-castes? Aren't there sub-castes in these two major castes? 
are they there or not? They are definitely there, isn't it? Because the world is driven by economic engine today, everything is driven by economics. Nobody ascribes to any other philosophy or any other ideology in the world anymore, please look at this. Economics is the only philosophy. People are talking about economics as if it's a philosophy. Just how to count your money, this has become a philosophy. This is the philosophy of life. Please see everywhere the… just see how the discourse in the newspapers, in the magazines, on the televisions has changed in the last ten years or fifteen years in… in the world. Particularly, maybe it changed a little earlier in United States, but in India in the last ten years, do you see how it has changed? Nowhere there's any other talk about anything. It's all economics, 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 economics. Are we making it or not making it? Yes or no? So that is capitalistic way of living. It looks like it brings prosperity, it definitely brings pros prosperity in the beginning, but if we don't temper it as it goes, we will head towards disaster, which we are hurtling towards, not going slowly now. So Krishna says at one point that the kshatriyas, he says either you have to transform them or you must kill them. Must put an end to their clan. Boy means, he says, Mother Earth is like a cow, she gives you your life. Why he's comparing to cow? He's because he's coming from a pastoral society. Life giving animal means cow. If you have a cow in your house, your children will not die. This is a simple wisdom of the day. So he said, the kshatriyas are squeezing the udder of the cow to a point where it hurts the cow. See, all these things are completely gone. You must see this. I mean, I don't know whether you noticed this, twenty-five years ago, suppose you lived in a village or you visited a village, if a man wants to milk the cow, first thing he takes the calf, let the calf drink something and then he milks it and in the end, he leaves one part of the milk for the calf again, it goes and drinks after the milking is over. Today you put a machine and suck everything out of the cow. You must be… you must not be surprised you suck the blood of the cow out. Isn't it so? You're putting a machine and sucking everything out and the calf, if it is a male, it is killed instantly. If it's a female, it's grown somewhere else in some other place. So we are definitely milking the cow to the extent it hurts, not just for that cow, to the mother earth also, aren't we milking her too hard? So this is what he said then, he's talking like an environmentalist five thousand years ago. He's saying they're milking it too hard. These guys, if they get the possibility, they would like to have more and more and more and more. Either we must transform them, they should turn spiritual or they must be killed. And right now, we cannot propound a philosophy like that, but that is what will happen anyway. Either you transform yourself or you will be killed, not by a Krishna, by nature. You think it's not going to happen? You think it's not going to happen? It is not a question of some kind of punishment for you. It is just a course correction, either you do it consciously or it will be done to you in a cruel manner.
It is invariable, it's inevitably going to happen, invariably going to happen to humanity, isn't it? We must either make the course correction consciously or it will be done to us cruelly. So at that time Krishna decided, first thing is to try to transform them. If it doesn't work, do the cruel thing, that is Kurukshetra, the cruel thing is happening. So the dharma, the varnashrama, the dharma of dividing a society based on craft or competence, is it not still there? Isn't the world divided by competence? Yes or no? Whether you like it or you don't like it, it is divided, isn't it? Only thing is, we have made it little more porous. One who is here can go there, one who is there can go there, if he's not good enough he can fall back. We made it little more porous. Even then, repeatedly did you see, Duryodhana stood up and said, a man can become a king in three… three different ways. Did you not hear that? It need not be by birth. And repeatedly, Vyasa keeps repeating, Krishna keeps, keeps repeating, a Brahmana is a Brahmana, not… I think even in the Yaksha Prashna it came. A Brahmana is not a Brahmana not because of his birth, because of his knowledge. So even today, if you go by this standard, that a Brahmana is a Brahmana because of his knowing and knowledge, aren't there Brahmanas in the world? Aren't there Kshatriyas in the world? Aren't there Vaishyas in the world? Too many Vaishyas, too many business people. Aren't there Shudras in the world? So there's another way to look at the caste system. If your sense of responsibility is only to your, in, to your individual person and nobody else, you're only interested in your well-being, we call you a shudra. Obviously, your scope of life will be limited because you're only interested in this one. If you're interested in you and your family and your community, then we say you're a vaishya. Vaishyas always take good care of their family and their community, please see. If you're interested in the well-being of your nation, then we say you're a kshatriya. If you're interested in the well-being of all life upon this planet, then we say you're a brahmana. There's another way of looking at it. That is how the society was dis divided. This division was made for convenience. This division was made for effective usage of human talent. But over a period of time, human beings have this problem. Every difference we have with each other, we, can, we make it into a discriminatory process. Every difference transforms itself into a discrimination. Because of that, it became ugly. You cannot eliminate the caste system. You may eliminate one kind of caste system, it will come up in another way. According to people's competence, according to people's capability, their intelligence and whatever else, won't people arrange themselves anyway in the world as groups of people, strata of people? Equal opportunity, but never equality. Equality is a crime. Equality should never happen. Equality means you'll decimate the world into one module. That will be the worst crime you can com uh, commit on the humanity. There should never be equality, but there should be equal opportunity. Every human being should have equal opportunity. Two human beings will never be equal. They cannot be equal in the very nature of things. Isn't it so?
Um, Sadhguru, um, at the beginning of <coughs> at the beginning of Marbara, you were working out calculations and talking about the cycles um, around the solar sun, and it's been sitting with me the question all the time really is just to find was wondering what is the point of these cycles um, because um, yeah and it seems that they they take us um, these cycles take us at a certain point to access to higher potential you know within us and then we seem to then regress and go back to war and so I just wonder what those why those cycles, what's the point of them? And also with Dharma, um, is Dharma something we choose or something that is kind of there waiting for us to discover? Um, and how do we find out, you know, what our Dharma is? The question is, uh, we were talking about cycles in the very beginning of the program. He's asking why the cycles? cycles of expansion and again back into regression and stuff. And then, what is this dharma and what is my dharma? You cannot accuse me for how the creation is. The planet is not a triangle, it's a round. Almost every object in the celestial sphere is like this. Because a round object moves with least resistance. Nature invented the wheel before human being could ever think about, think of. The spinning wheel has been going on for a long time. But human beings claim they invented the wheel. You didn't invent the you had to just open your eyes and look, the wheel was always there, all over the place, in any number of forms. So, because the most efficient movement happens when something is circular, everything naturally becomes cyclic. A circular system is what we are referring to as cyclic, isn't it? If it was a square, it would go away. Every time it would break down. Because it's circular, it is moving so smoothly, you can forget that you're actually traveling in the space, hurtling at a tremendous speed right now. Yes or no? You can forget this simply because it is circular and the movement is so smooth. So you cannot question the intelligence of the creator on making it circular and cyclical. Tremendous intelligence, there is no better dynamics than that. So because it is circular and if it was fully circular, not elliptical, it could have become perpetual possibly. But if you know the moment, can somebody give me a metal chain, something, somebody has a chain? I may not give it back. <laughs> when we 
structure buildings, not the concrete buildings. When we want to build something without using steel or concrete, the simple thing that we do is just this, hold it like this. This shape, the chain is not naturally taking, reverse this up and that will be the shape of the building. This is what the sadhana hall is, you understand? You hold it like this, now this shape exactly, you reverse this, that's a perfect shape because it's perfectly in tune with the planet. So geometrically it's a perfect shape that without any tensile material, without any reinforcement, the building is standing because… simply because of this. We didn't invent this, we just observed this. So, if you continued this, what would it be? It would be an ellipse like this, isn't it? So naturally, the universe took that form. Wherever you see any galaxy you see, any picture of the universe you see, you see it is like this. It is the same chain everywhere. Wherever there is physical material, wherever there is movement, naturally that form will come. Why is the chain not standing like this? This is how it falls. So that is how the universe is. So that is how the root for the earth is around the sun. That is how the moment of the solar system is around the super sun or the rudra. So, that is the intelligence of the creator, we cannot take credit for that, so don't accuse me. And this takes twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty years to complete this cycle. How we know this is because we did not live for thirteen… I mean thirty thousand years to observe this. We know this because when we take the globe, the planet Earth, and look at the axis, the axis is like this and we know this is moving. For every degree of change, there is a moment of seventy-two miles. So when we look at this, we know this will get completed. The wobble of the planet gets completed in twenty-five thousand nine hundred twenty years. From this context, we know this is how much it takes to go around. So, leaving the geometrical part of the universe, what is the dharma? Now what I was talking was a certain dharma. Dharma means a law. This is the law of the physics, that this is how it can move. If it moved like this and like this, it wouldn't last a day, the universe. Because it is sticking to this pattern, it is moving effortlessly, smoothly with least amount of friction. I'm telling you least amount of friction, not no friction. Because there is that least amount of friction, slowly physicality will wear out. The universe will wear out, the sun will wear out, the super sun will wear out. All of them have a beginning and an end and that's the law. That law is a physical law. And you exist only because you have a physical form. So for physical beings, there is one kind of law. 
For non-physical beings, there's another kind of law. This is what Urvashi says. I am not a human being, so I don't go by your laws. My laws are different because I am not physical. My physicality is etheric, it is not physical-physical, so I… your laws of this and that does not apply to me. But you are a little bit of a hybrid. You, there is a physical dimension to you, there is also another dimension to you. So this is why you are struggling with it. If you are only a physical being, then the loss would be very simple. Now, this is like you're traveling in an airplane. The airplane is going at one speed, the passengers are going at a different speed. How do you manage this? That is your condition right now. Your body goes only this far, your mind is going there and your being is of a completely different capability. Now, this is like airplane is going at one speed, the seats are going at another speed, passengers are going at a different speed. You have seen in all these high-tech movies, these days they're trying to figure it out. This is something that we have known all the time. You know, you, you see all this whatever, these days, uh, actually this matrix and all this, it is word by word from the Gita, do you know this? They picked up the whole thing from the Gita, whatever Krishna said, and they're trying to create those illusions and stuff because they're literally imagining those illusions, not understanding experientially, it's happening to you every moment of your life. The planet and your body are traveling at one speed. Your mind is traveling at a different speed, your being is a completely different speed. But you have to manage balance between the three. If you get it properly seated, if your being gets properly seated and your mind complements that, then you are a perfect being. If you doesn't get seated, you are all over the place. Never able to figure out, what's wrong with me? That is, if you have the humility to see that there's something wrong with you. Most human beings do not even have the humility to see, they're obnoxious, they think they're fine. They think just being like this is fine then there's nothing to do with that one. If you observe yourself very, very carefully, that's the reason why this, mu this music is important. Because it is not just the beat, it's not the rhythm. There is a whole arithmetic to it, there is a whole mathematic to it. If you go mathematics, it's like tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk. Making this tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk into That's a challenge. These are two different dimensions. One is completely unromantic, tuck, 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 everything. One is one, one can't be two, isn't it? But now to fuse that one and two and three and four and the infinite into one, that's the reason why this kind of music, uh, I, can, I don't want to go into that aspect, but the profoundness of what's involved in learning it and mastering it is very different from music that we play for entertainment. Every aspect of life, if you are willing to pursue it, if you are willing to pursue it to its ultimate profoundness, is a passage to the core of existence, which is the source of creation. Now, 
your fundamental dharma is not something that you choose, it is already set as to what are the laws of this existence. Your thing is to perceive it, but for you to perceive it, you have to be in a certain state of dharma of your own. Why dharma of your own is because you have karma of your own. Because you have bondages of your own, you will have to set up a little bit of dharma of your own. But don't make dharma of your own too big because it is a natural dharma. It is the dharma of the infinite nature of the existence which is more important than your little dharma. Your little dharma should be constantly calibrated every day, every moment of your life. It can't remain the same. What was your dharma yesterday cannot remain the same today. The ultimate law will remain the same today, today, a million years later, to the eternity, it remains the same. But your little dharma that you set up for your own convenience, to be in tune with that, this need to be constantly monitored. This is what sadhana means. Every day if you sit down, ah, Shambhavi, okay <laughs> not like that. If you every day with the necessary devotion, if you sit down, you will see every day the practice will be different. Every day it will not be the same. You watch this closely and see, if you're capable of paying minute attention to things, you will say every day the practice itself is different, not the experience. Experience for sure will be different. I'm saying the practice itself will be different. Not that you're getting better because of you're doing it every day, not like that. That is in the initial first month or so, but afterwards the practice itself will take. That is the beauty of sadhana, when the sadhana is given to you properly, you don't have to worry too much about attuning your dharma to the universal law. It will constantly do its own adjustment. Sadhana means a tool. Tool for what? To be in tune with the universe. So that is what the yoga sadhana means, yoga means union. Sadhana means a tool, tool to achieve the union. Every day it's adjusting itself according to your karmic patterns by its own nature, not that you have to do it. She has an intelligence of her own, if you're doing Shambhavi. If you're doing other practices, they have an intelligence of their own. They will do their own adjustment and alignment. It is… it is a pain to me. I go about joyfully, but it is actually a serious pain to go and teach in this world today. In today's world, to teach spiritual process to anybody is a shame and a pain. I endure that every day because they neither have the humility, they neither can have the intelligence to value it, nor do they have the attention to look at something carefully enough. I go about joyfully because I keep a certain fire between me and the world.